everyone, uh, we'll just give a couple minutes um, for everyone to dial in um, before we start the uh, webinar. So if we may allow, if we may ask you, you know, just to stay a minute or two before we kick off. Thank you. Hello and good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to this webinar and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Connie Wong. I am the Executive Director with Waystone based in Singapore. So today's topic um, is helping fund managers to prepare and navigate for the ODD and ESG of today. Um, ODD is not surely not something new to most of the managers today. Uh, when it comes to the interaction with investors, you know, especially of course during the uh, fundraising stage. So what we wanted to cover today is the key areas that investors are uh, looking at. Um, and what has changed over the last 12 months, especially the phase when we're all working remotely, you know, utilizing different kind of uh, virtual platforms. Um, what are the common pitfalls our experts have been seeing when they evaluating a fund and how managers can tackle them? And of course, the second part of the, of the webinar, we're going to touch on the ESG, uh, which is a very um, topical agenda and, and hot potatoes in the market where everybody was talking about that. And I was doing some um, research when, when I um, looking at this topic and something very interesting that popped up that um, I think I, 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 that I've seen is as of the latest uh, first quarter uh, of this year, uh, some $2 billion a day that flow into invest, uh, sustainable investment funds uh, with a total amount of $2 trillion assets. Um, so we thought it'd be good for us to share, you know, how the fund managers they can um, integrate the ESG to their own investment portfolio without too much of compromising their own uh, philosophy and thesis. And of course, what are the tools available in the market that managers can use um, to assess the, the ESG rating? And last but not the least, which is a Q&A session. Um, so you all see a chat box on the right side of your screen and um, you can um, send in the questions anytime to us um, throughout the presentation. And I would strongly suggest you guys doing that because we have three amazing speakers uh, joining us this morning. Um, Igor, uh, the senior consultant at Mercer, uh, has been heavily involved, you know, and also the discussion with investor almost uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, uh, with the managers during the ODD process. And our my fellow uh, two um, ladies panelists, um, Rebecca, uh, director with Waystone, and also Casatina, uh, the head of risk analyst at State Street. Um, so without further ado, and I think before we get into the content of the ODD and ESG, uh, if I may ask each of the panelists uh, to give us a brief introduction of your firm and at a very high level, how you have seen in the industry. I can maybe perhaps ask Rebecca first and then followed by Igor and also Casatina. Great, thank you, Connie. Um, and just, I, I don't know, there seems to be a bit of background noise on the um, recording, so I don't know if everyone else can just go on mute. Sorry. Um, thank you, and so lovely to join you. Um, I'm based in the Cayman Islands, hence why it's dark behind me. So, but good morning to you all, and so lovely to be here. Um, it, you, for those of you not familiar with Waystone, we are a risk governance and compliance firm. So, as a professional mindset director, it's perhaps uh, not surprising that I'm very much focused on the G. In ESG. Um, in terms of the conversations we've been having with our clients and the managers that we work with, 
I think a number of our managers are getting a lot more detailed questions around what they're doing around ESG. Um, as Connie said, you know, is it a hot potato to coin her phrase? Um, we are finding that some of our managers um, are being caught a little bit on the back foot by the due diligence process and investors asking them about what they're doing around ESG. Um, so what we really hope with this webinar today is to give you some tools to help you prepare with that. Um, in terms of kind of how we've seen the industry adapt to ESG, I mean, this was very much traditionally a long only um, area of focus. Now we're seeing a number of new entrants to the market with some really interesting products. Um, you know, and I think the fund industry itself is so nimble and able to adapt to these to these different trends uh, that we've seen with um, engine um, engine number one's a successful proxy battle with ExxonMobil, the, the real impact that we can have as an industry in this area. Um, and I think ESG is quite unique in many senses because it's something that's been very much investor driven. Um, you know, and we are seeing some different geographical um, ways of addressing ESG. Obviously, the Europeans uh, have led the way in terms of legislation, but you know, the other jurisdictions aren't too far behind. So with that, I will stop and hand over to Igor. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, just to give a quick introduction about myself. So my name is Igor. I'm the head of Mercer Sentinel in Asia, which is a dedicated team within Mercer. And we are kind of specialized conducting operational risk consulting operational diligence, custody consulting, and as well transition management for our clients. And to give a broader picture about Mercer, Mercer is a global consulting firm and we are usually in the areas quite strong in health, career, and wealth. And within the wealth businesses, it's where my team is sitting, Mercer Sentinel team. And so not besides operational due diligence and consulting, we also conduct um, others, we also provide other services to our clients, which is also part of um, the natural processes about uh, investment due diligence, investment consulting for our institutional investor when it comes, for example, to strategic asset allocation, and obviously our third pillar, which is, we, we also, I think, probably quite famous at the moment in the market and one of the leading firms, our OCIO business, where we currently kind of holding almost $3 billion on the asset under management. To give you a flavor of what our typical our clients are, it's really institutional investors, endowments, foundations, pension funds, government agencies or banks or insurers, even family offices and partially managers are engaging us in certain engagements. And to, on the point which Rebecca highlighted that ESG is kind of driven by investors, I think it's the same observations we are seeing it because, because the regulations across the globe are advancing at a different speed. And as well, I think it's a hot topic, as, as also colleagues say. It's always in the discussion every day in the news. Everybody receives newsletters or bombarded with new announcement of ESG managers. Uh, uh, sorry, ESG strategies are implemented by managers. Or what we recently see, um, a lot of impact funds have been launched. Or man bigger global managers established center of excellence, particular focus on ESG. And so you can see in the market, the demand for ESG experts is quite high. So it's not easy to fill all these gaps, but I think we are moving into the right direction for the moment. But we have to, I think from my perspective, we have to keep in mind is there's no common formula for that. I think um, asset, different asset managers offer different solution. Um, and as well, it's really driven by, by regulations and as mentioned before, regulators are advancing at a different speed. So it will be interesting to see over the next few years how we come, come together as a whole organization globally um, and adapt the ESG aspect in our investment process and as well in our diligence process. That's for my side. Thank you very much. I will hand it over to Constantina. 
Oh, hello, everybody, and apologies for not having my camera on. I'm having a bad IT day today. Um, so my name is Constantina Fonta, and I head the risk analytics department in uh, uh, State Street, um, where the ESG solution um, lives. Uh, so just a, a, a quick introduction to ESG within State Street. This is not a new topic for us. Uh, State Street has been involved in uh, research uh, and uh, monitoring and reporting solution around ESG for over six years. But what is uh, actually new is the uh, integration of ESG factors within the analytics space. Uh, as you know, it, it, it was a strategic um, uh, move because we believe that ESG should not be uh, seen in uh, isolation, but seen, you know, holistically within uh, the uh, investment analytics uh, across the, the assets. Um, a little bit about our clients. So um, uh, here in APAC, we uh, service uh, asset owners, asset managers and uh, hedge funds. But we are part of a, of a global team. So we see how globally the ESG trends uh, evolve. Um, uh, uh, um, and the the ESG reporting and uh, monitoring, as we see it uh, here in APAC, is driven, as Rebecca said, from uh, investors at the moment, not that much from uh, regulators. Although we see this changing um, um, quickly, uh, as we had uh, many uh, markets across uh, APAC, uh, you know, uh, issuing consultation papers and. Uh, and so on. And uh, also, as we see across different aspects of investment analytics, not just ESG, um, there is a domino effect that going across um, uh, regions. So uh, when there is a regulation in one jurisdiction, it will most likely affect different uh, regions. So it's a global topic. Again, I will repeat, it's a hot topic. It means hundred different things to a hundred different people and uh, I think the key for ESG is flexibility, flexibility in the way of seeing it and flexibility in, it, in it, integrating it into the investment decision process and also reporting and monitoring. Thank you. Thank you everyone. I think that's a very, uh, you know, very insightful, you know, the level of the way that you are seeing uh, in the market and and who are driving uh, who, who who's driving that kind of uh, um, a weight of uh, in the industry and I guess the first question maybe that's mostly to eager uh, it's about you know in the current time I think we, we're moving away from the pandemic towards the endemic uh, what ODD looks like and and has there been any a focus shift by investor. I think that's something like uh, most of the managers here they would like to know, and also to get get your you know uh, your experience from that. Sure, I think it's it's a good question. So maybe we have to go back a bit where maybe last year February when COVID was kind of picking up, unfortunately across the region and in definitely impacted the ODD process itself because when we look at the traditional ODD approach which was always required to conduct an on-site visit meet them what does it mean it means seeing the manager visiting the office traveling and um, inspecting the confidential documents on-site which cannot be shared uh, through email um, inspecting the data centers so with COVID and with the travel restrictions obviously it was not possible for us to, to conduct it and to be honest, at that point of time, nobody really knows what's going to happen. I mean, to, to the extent maybe some of us thought, are we going to lose our jobs, right? So because 
investors expect on Siberia. But uh, from our investor perspective, of course, they had to make the decision because looking at COVID was not disappearing uh, as maybe a lot of people expected. And still, the market still was kind of volatile and particular China was doing pretty well. Um, managers had to make a decision. What, what I, sorry, investors had to make a decision. So what are we going to do? Are we going to delay our investment or our funding with the manager? Are, are we going to um, restrict our, uh, our funding only to managers which we know, that means we have already seen them before, we have conducted operational diligence or we know them through our relationships. Or eventually, the third approach was thinking about a different way and we call it now these days a virtual due diligence. That means we set up like today, a conference call with the different managers uh, and then their stakeholders and then go through their operational diligence processing questionnaire. I remember in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism but from investors say, oh, you don't meet the managers. How do you know, how do you assess the knowledge? How do you assess the premises? Mm, yes, I agree. The skepticism was, was kind of justifiable, but I think it was important for consulting or ODD experts to, to kind of show we are not compromising on our quality because we are adapting our approach. And the beauty about ODD is a good ODD is always dynamic because ODD is always driven by market by market requirements, investor demand, and regulations. So it all comes together, and then usually we can be able to justify our our change in the ODE process, which led to the operational diligence, which is conducted virtually. And what does it mean for managers? Is we had to ask specific questions about how do you manage the COVID situation? How is your BCP planning? How is your cybersecurity setup? Your infrastructure setup? So generally, I think those was kind of areas of focus which we need to, to assess. And in my experience to share, I didn't see a big disruption because the asset management industry or the managers were kind of ready to adjust and, and able to activate the BC plan when it was active for most of the managers. Um, it also showed to the investors certain benefits, to be honest. Instead, in the past, when we conducted ODB, most firms, you visit the manager for one day, you have a six to eight hours discussion, go through the different functions. Um, now we could spread it over two to three days, which gives a lot of flexibilities for both parties. The CFO, CEO has more time to dedicate, to, is able to share more, there's no time pressure. I say um, documents were able to share via a virtual data room. Of course, we had something to sign NDA, but it means we still had access to confidential information and the development of the of the IT infrastructure and the, and the digitalization, which was kind of accelerating the process, uh, was quite helpful. So we could overcome the challenge um, and and help investors to make to to feel to to make an opinion about the manager and the operational setup. So I think it was quite well managed across the industry. And even addressing the topics of concern investors had about cybersecurity, working from home, trade execution, because in the past, um, traders usually will work from the office and only execute trades from home. Offset trading was not very common. But I think that now with adapting the situation, a lot of managers have kind of revised the operating model, have adapted. Let's give you an example, of course, allowing trading from home, implementing Bloomberg anywhere, thinking about cloud computing instead of having a, a primary data center on site. So there was a clear shift you can see, even the discussion, do I still need a BCDR uh, site somewhere? Actually, we can't even visit, right? We, everybody has to work from home. So there were certain cost savings also to consider for manager. And as well, there were cost savings for clients because we don't need to travel. There's, and a travel budget was always a big, uh, big expense item for investors. So they could save on that. So I think the, the outcome, 
was well managed across the industry. And I think the investors are kind of used to the approach we are currently driving in the industry. But we have to observe, I think, over the next few months, maybe six, seven months, are we going back to on-site visits? And go, are we going back to the traditional model? In my view, I think it will be a risk-based approach. Say that if we know the manager, if we have seen them before, probably we don't need to come back to do a full ODD with a full on-site visit. But probably for new managers, which have, has been, for example, only incorporated or the, the PM or the CEO is not that well-known in the street, then obviously the onset will probably be triggered by investors and that will be a requirement. So that's in a nutshell, Thank you, if I can summarize. Thank you, Igor. I think that's really interesting to, 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 to hear from you also. You know, the change of form of the ODD process and, and what's the, uh, the kind of slightly different angle or additional part of the, uh, the, the, the additional part of the component that investors are looking into that. And, and you mentioned about the cyber security, you mentioned about the way that the, the, the managers are operating their business. And uh, I have one just other curiosity, you know, are you seeing any um, increased investor focus on the ESG and also like perhaps the board diversity? And how, how has the due diligence process evolved, um, if any, to incorporate these factors? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, it comes initially to the to the to the point I was explaining. The ODD process is quite dynamic and always driven. As ESG is driven by investors, our ODD process is also driven. So investors requesting for the scrutiny to understand how the manager incorporated ODD at the investment prospect in the investment um, process to make an informative decision to to make sure they align with the investment guidelines and what kind of ESG data are used to establish this investment guidelines and. And, and as well ESG ratings, but as well, managers want to understand, as you correctly highlight, what happened at the firm level. What what does the manager do on uh, diversity inclusion? How they really incorporate these these values in their corporate culture? And this is this is an important factor because it will always align as well with the interest of the investor and the manager. There should be a natural alignment, and if there is a disagreement, it it could be um, a difficult challenge to overcome over time. <laughs> And from our, sorry, I can add in on the ODD perspective, obviously what happened is um, ODD experts will focus on this area and want to understand how, how the manager overcomes and incorporate that. I say, but it's not only having a policy in place and having a, a, be a signatory to any guidelines and, and or principles, it's really demonstrating it, how it really, how you lift it, how you, and quantify, and able to prove it, it's quantified in a quantitative approach as well. Okay, thank you, Avery. That's really good uh, that you shared a part of what you've been seeing you know, along the process, how it evolved. And while we're on the topic of the board diversity, and Rebecca, I know you, you sit on board as the independent director, you, you possibly have been um, talking to the investors, you know, also especially with the managers as well. And were there anything you wanted to, to share perhaps here, like how you seeing the, the, the interactions amongst various parties as the independent director? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, I think Igor's um, point about um, culture at the firm level is is incredibly important. I think investors increasingly want to understand what's going on under the hood and they want to invest with the good guys. Um, what we've really seen, I think, is around the ESG due diligence that the questionnaires have really evolved. A couple of years ago, it's very much, do you have an ESG policy or are you a UNPRI signatory? And, and now it's much more involved. It's a much deeper dive to understand how you're integrating ESG into your investment process. 
um, you know, Igor touched on data service providers. So they want to understand which data service providers are you using and how you selected them. You know, there are other examples where I've seen where they're asking things about, you know, what the carbon footprint is of the portfolio and how you're measuring that. And um, what is your ESG objective? You know, what is your risk framework? Um, you know, what's your engagement policy with your portfolio companies? Have you used a proxy vote? Give us some examples as to how you've incorporated your ESG factors successfully in your portfolio in the last 12 months. Um, so it's a lot more involved. And I, you know, as I mentioned before, I think it's it's a non-exec director. It's my job to sort of ask the questions to the managers before they before they get them. Because I think it, it can be quite daunting sometimes as a manager when you get, you know, a several if you're not necessarily an ESG fund or you haven't got an ESG policy and suddenly you get a, you know, a five to nine page questionnaire around ESG due diligence, um, it, it, you know, it, it can be quite challenging. So it's just thinking about those things up front. And, you know, if you don't have an ESG policy, that's fine, but clearly be prepared to clearly articulate why that, why you don't have that. And again, to Igor's point, Focus on what you're doing at the manager level, because maybe you don't have a product that lends itself well to an ESG strategy. You know, say, for example, you're a commodities manager. But what can you do? What are you doing at the firm level? Um, yeah, I think that that can be tremendously powerful for managers to have that story sort of tightened up and ready to go. Thank you, Rebecca. I know you, t- you touched on the questionnaires. And that's, that's maybe also back to Igor. And I think there's a question that, you know, on the ODD processing general you know um, it appears to some, some of the managers is getting more onerous and I, I, I would say if you have anything to share maybe um, the top three to five things that you think managers can do uh, to prepare for the ODD and also any common pitfalls to avoid given that I know you've been talking to allocators investors on a day-to-day basis so you're possibly the best person to, to share with us here. I, I think you're on mute. Yeah, thank you, Connie. Definitely, I can share more around this topic and looking at the ODD process and giving you a flavor. Yes, it becomes a bit more onerous, and the reason is, of course, because we want to deliver a good product to our clients and really understand the manager's business. Um, and this requires, right, looking at the manager from almost like a 360-degree angle, looking at all the processes, um, understanding their policies and controls in place who are the service providers they're using in general, the whole fund administrator, what are the lawyers, what are the auditors, and it requires time to get this, this kind of insight. So I understand managers have to go through this ODD process sometimes with various companies and various um, investors, but I think there are a few things they can really do, and because if they were compared to different process in general, the way ODD is run is, 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 is glo- it's a global standard and it's, it's have a similar concept in, in key themes like valuation, um, trading, BCP planning, cybersecurity, as mentioned before. It's probably now a hot topic more than ever before. Uh, but most importantly is if I can advise managers on that aspect, it's important to do your homework, be prepared. Um, Focus on the areas you know what they were going to ask, right? It's, it's sometimes quite obvious of what is to say, valuation, trading, how do you manage your cash control, the cash movement of the fund, how do you interact with the fund administrator, how do you onboard investors? So these are kind of topics you can really already cover before you go into the ODD and be familiarized, familiarized yourself. Another aspect is also being, being transparent. I think that's my recommendation. Um, don't hold back with information um, and 
try to provide us the documents and support the ODD expert in their work. I mean, it should be a dialogue between you and the ODD expert from the beginning and not only during when we meet at the discussion, because when we meet, we should already have a dialogue and establish the base we like to uh, explore and to what extent we want to go in certain topics. And that's why I think I would recommend to mention at the beginning stage, you should call the ODD expert maybe as much as you need to understand how the process is going to work, what are the questions you might, in areas you're going to focus, what documents you like to see. And if this is not clear, um, it's very difficult to, to create a very effective ODD process and considering the time constraints you sometimes have, and particularly when we go back to on-site visits. And the fourth point I will highlight is when you tell your story about your company and about your process, be consistent. Because if your policies say A, but you do B, and then your staff represents C, it's kind of um, difficult to, to accept that and to understand how does the company and the processes are really led um, and controlled and what kind of oversight is provided if the, the senior people don't really understand what is, what, what, how the process is really properly executed. And, and I also have to be honest with the managers, I think, here, um, and uh, they need to understand, yes, ODD will never win your mandate, to be honest. It's, it's really driven in the first aspect of looking at your performance, analyzing it from an IDD perspective. But I have to, uh, to highlight that, that ODD can lead that you lose a mandate. Because if you don't pass your ODD, um, you can be the best manager in the world with the highest performance in turnover. It will not give you that. The, the client will concern and probably not give you the mandate. So it's important to be ready, and as, as highlighted with some of the advice, as I mentioned, to consider in that aspect. Um, and, and your second question about what are the common pitfalls? Um, it's, it's very difficult to say sometimes because every manager in my experience is quite individual. The way they run their processes, the way they set up. There are some common, common approach, uh, processes and um, controls in place. You can find a particular manager set up in Hong Kong. You can see there's a similar pattern, but still there are differences. Um, and that's why the risk we sometimes identify can be very different. But if I would summarize it in what we commonly see across the manager is, of course, these days, again, I have to emphasize cybersecurity is a hot topic. It becomes even more now elaborate when working from home. You really want to understand how do you adapt your cybersecurity policy, your, your data security policy to your business? Do you have hard disk, hard disk encryption? Um, do you restrict access to public science? Do you do cybersecurity training, phishing exercise, penetration testing? So all these topics, even for smaller measure, you need to really think about it. And of course, it's always driven also by the asset classes, the way a private managers run compared to hedge fund manager could be different, but still, there must be a consideration that we should, and you should clearly demonstrate that you have considered all aspects. Another point is about segregation of duties, particularly for smaller manager, when you have the chief operating officers at the same time, the compliance officer. Um, yes, there could be a conflict of interest, but even for smaller managers, there is an acceptable threshold, I would say. But most importantly, you really need to demonstrate that you separate the investment team and the operations team. So there should be no overlap in duties and responsibilities. And this can be easily achieved with the right hires, people with experience, and a clear reporting line, which is defined. The another point which we see most of them as a weakness is about the conflict of interest. When we talk about personal account dealing policies, give them entertainment, use of expert network, there are still generally a lot of weaknesses around that. And, and managers, 
are surprised when we pick that up because they say, okay, the regulations require us follow. Well, of course, as a, as a consultant, we always follow the best practice, which we see in Mercer and what we have established over the years. So I think that's always a hot topic, conflict of interest, and it will be a conflict of, it will be a hot topic, even from, from a regulatory perspective. Another point I think I will highlight is about succession planning. Again, it's probably more applicable for smaller firms and to media firms, where it's an owner-run firm, where the CEO is at the same time the owner and holds 100% equity stake. A lot of firms probably think, don't think about what's going to happen to the equity stake once the CEO becomes incapacitated. Without standing, of course, we understand in all the PPMs, you will have a keyman clause, which gives the investor the opportunity to redeem out the fund if something happened to the key man. But I think managers have to think about beyond that and understand what will really happen to the owner of the firm and the equity stake once it becomes incapacitated. Because it doesn't mean you have to close down the firm. Is the ownership equity or the equity stake stuck in their estate and you cannot make any decision? So there are discussions which the manager should have to understand how to approach that as well. Um, cash control, it will and remain, I think it will always be a hot topic across managers. Uh, you have to have a proper cash control in place, particularly for funds which are administrated internally. Um, there, there's no way that this is a topic which will be not scrutinized to the extent that um, you need really to prove how you access the bank uh, the bank account, is the multi-factor authentication, so, and at least a dual signature approval, etc. So all these topics need to be covered. And last but not least, which we always see a kind of a weakness, particularly in an Asian context, is about when we think about the fund governance. And when we launch, of, when we set up a fund, particularly on a hedge fund, and it's a company setup, from our perspective, we always would expect the independent directors sitting on the board. It's, that's quite important for us to represent the interest of the investors. And as well, when we look at the private equity firm setups, definitely, uh, if it's a limited partnership, you have to establish an LPAC. I think it's common practice, definitely. Uh, less practice we will see in, in the context of hedge funds, sometimes having majority of independent directors. That's the best that you can achieve, and that's what investors actually also love. Um, and the last topic I would say is about best execution. I mean, that's, that should not be taken lightly. You need to really demonstrate how you achieve best execution and do you have an oversight of that, an independent uh, control function who really checks that the trader has achieved the goals and, the, and follows the order placement policy I have established? So that's in a nutshell, I would say, kind of some of the topics how we will consider support. Thank you, Igor. I think that's a really full of, uh, full of thoughts for, for everyone here. I mean, um, the point that you touch on the alignment of interest, um, the segregation of duties uh, to avoid the conflict of interest, uh, having the board independent. I think these are for sure the, the, the key factors that uh, managers can take away today uh, when they go through their internal process and what they can do it um, as a best practice, especially if they're looking to attract or um, to, to attract a um, the capital from institutional investors, um, more sophisticated one where you're trying to, you know, create a longevity a relationship with your investor. So consistency and also transparency. That's also my two uh, takeaways here. And, and thank you, Igor, on, on that part of the ODD. And I guess we can flip a little bit on, on the ESG. Um, it's a very broad topic. And I, uh, there's a number of things that we can touch on and we can talk for days about the ESG. And so I guess if, if maybe I can... Uh, um, uh, over to Cosatina, just to, 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 to your point of view, you know, how we can define or maybe narrow the ESG objectives and 
how we can set the performance benchmarks. I know that there's no really uh, such a globally accepted um, a consistent definition of sustainable ESG investing. And it can mean different things to investors and you know the way that it, uh, managers can can adopt it, it's also differently. So um, Katatina, if you if I if I can invite you to, to share with us that that would be lovely. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um as I mentioned before, like ESG means different things to different people, and this is also translated on how uh, managers uh, integrate ESG into their governance, into their strategy, into their risk management and investment process, and then uh, at the end, the, the analytics and the monitoring and reporting to their investors. So, uh, so uh, I, I think it's commonly accepted that there is no one size fits all for sure. Um, either on the objectives or on how to integrate the ESG. So. Um, and different market participants are in a different stages of their ESG journey. So, um, yes, it is hot topic at the moment, but ESG is not new. So there have been uh, asset managers that they have integrated ESG uh, aspects into the investment uh, decision-making process um, many years ago, and they communicate this. And when we say ESG, you know, there is a tendency and a to, to think only the E of it, like the environmental, like carbon emissions. And I, I know that especially here in APAT, uh, regulators have been focusing more on the E, uh, like uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. So in, in, in all the communication with the market participants, we, we see a strong uh, um, uh, you know, direction towards the E, but there is also the S and the G that <laughs> they are equally important, and this should be part of the ESG journey uh, as well. So how how we how we implement the objectives? So there can be small steps before big jumps. <laughs> it can be positive or negative screening, uh, or it can be you know a, 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 a strategic approach of uh, you know how we incorporate this into the core of the investment uh, management process uh, as you say they are not um, uh, universally accepted standards but there are many frameworks out there and there are many popular frameworks uh, that uh, they're a good first step on standardization of uh, ESG and but uh, yes there are the frameworks there but none of the frameworks actually tell you how to implement the E, the S and the G, or how to report. So they give you the, you know, the general direction. So there is a lot of room for uh, interpretation, uh, which is a good thing, but also, <laughs> you know, it's a challenge itself. Um, and this is how we try to, to, to help our clients. I think that relative monitoring and relative objectives are gaining ground. Um, and this is uh, also uh, has to do with the reporting uh, at the end of the day. Like how my investors that they ask for more transparency, for more disclosures. How, what is their level of understanding of uh, ESG? How, how like, if I give them a number, how do they can they digest the number? Do they know what that number means? So, what I've seen over the past. Two years that I'm uh, um, like largely involved in the ESG reporting and analytics, that I see a trend towards relative, uh, which is 
easier to maintain, easier to understand from the investor's uh, point uh, of view. Uh, but uh, also the you know the objectives become also um, more complex, uh, and, and this is it comes from investor demand as well, but also from regulatory um, guidelines like where, for example the controversies, the reputational risks, stress testing on carbon uh, uh, carbon aspects, physical risks, uh, carbon earnings at risk, and all this. So it, it becomes. A, a complicated topic that the, the market participants will have to be prepared to to, to integrate in the in, in their processes. Um, yeah, that, that that's the the, the topics I, I would like to highlight on the on the objectives. Now on the performance uh, side and performance, I think is. Uh, um, it's yet to be proven for the ESG, um, you know, label, <laughs> and uh, especially focusing on the past 12 months and you know, uh, connecting it to the COVID uh, challenges. Uh, the past 12 months have not been, you know, standard normal conditions, and with the ESG as a hot topic as well, I think. I think it's too early to draw conclusions about the performance of ESG funds versus non-ESG funds and, and, and so on. We need a longer history of data, uh, of data under normal market conditions, standard market conditions without extreme volatility to, to be able to, 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 to draw conclusions uh, around performance. Thank you, Constantina. And I think uh, it was a very interesting part that you mentioned about the performance benchmarkings. And I think Rebecca and myself, we, we had a number of calls over the last few months, you know, managers are asking um, what kind of uh, benchmarks they can use, you know, to kind of uh, to rate a certain portfolio companies and maybe um, the fund itself um, when when they're doing uh, the, the internal assessment. And uh, maybe Rebecca, you can share with, you, share with us, you know, to what you've been saying in the market and also um, I, I recall that, that there is also a manager asking that like, is, is ESG and uh, uh, policy is a nice thing to have. And I guess, Rebecca, you can really share with us on that uh, two points. Yeah, I think um, it used to be a nice to have. And I think um, you know, it used to be one of those sort of tick the box and kind of move on. Um, and, I, you know, it has evolved, um, you know, uh, and if, as I mentioned beforehand, if you don't have an ESG policy, just be prepared to clearly articulate why that is. Um, I think Constantina made some fantastic points there around the flexibility and what ESG means to different me, people and different and different investors. So you'll have some investors that maybe they're 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 have aligned themselves with certain of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and so maybe they're looking for a certain type of reporting or a certain type of policy to meet those. Um, you know, going back to Igor's earlier point about alignment, that's that's still critical here. So when you're developing your policy, thinking about what your investors actually want, and there's this growing belief within the industry around the materiality of sustainability of it, um, sustainability risks and how they can impact investment returns, particularly in the longer term as we struggle, as the society struggle to deal with things like climate change, um, you know, lack of water, and there's um, some fantastic tools out there. I mean, one of the points that you raised earlier, Connie, was about sort of lack of definitions in the market and sort of no consistency. And the SASB uh, has done a fantastic job there. I think their materiality matrix is a really, really useful tool for managers to look at when they're thinking about how they can develop their ESG policy. 
Um, yeah, and there is some regulation obviously coming. The EU taxonomy will help and standardise some of those terms. But yes, the, the policy is a you know it is no longer a nice to have in short. Thank you, Rebecca. And I, I think we are also conscious of the time. And I think you, you, the, the, the one side point you touched just now, and it's kind of aligned with one of the questions that we have here is about the, you know, the, the ESG tours available to the managers. And I, I guess today, because we have quite a bit of uh, uh, managers who are on the line who are actually Asia-based, and uh, s- some of the time they might struggle to, to identify the uh, suitable tours they can use. And maybe Rebecca and Kostatina, you can share um, what you've been seeing in the market that uh, you, you think could be potentially a, a tour that managers here can um, consider? Yeah, uh, the tools, yeah. I mean, tools, number one, which is also the biggest challenge of integrating ESG, is uh, ESG data. Um, the vendors you're going to use, the, you know, th- th- there are so many vendors uh, out there um, uh, with using different methodologies, different approaches, uh, focusing on different aspects of uh, ESG. So um, it, 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 it's about finding the balance between what your objectives are, what you're trying to achieve or what you, you know, how would you like to meet your investors' uh, reporting needs, that disclosure needs as well, and the right uh, uh, vendor. And uh, uh, combining the vendor, again, with the framework, as Rebecca said, uh, there are different frameworks there that uh, um, meet different uh, needs, like the, the SASB framework, framework TC, TCFD, the UNPRI, that like some of the most popular ones. Um, but... Th- Again, ESG data, finding a right framework and finding the balance between reporting, uh, the reporting needs of the investors. The regulator, the regulations are coming for sure, and we have to, you know, uh, uh, keep a f- forward-looking eye and not just uh, looking at today. Like, and uh, and having um, uh, always in the back of uh, our minds that ESG is ever evolving. Like uh, it's it. Even for those that uh, they consider to be, um, you know, ahead of the game, uh, sophisticated ESG players, there's no static notion when it comes to ESG. It's 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 uh, it's so dynamic, and uh, we need to be prepared for the next uh, step, even if it's driven by our investors, or even if it's driven by regulation, or if it's driven by ESG itself as an asset class, uh, as as well. Yeah, I think the regulation is really important. Um, so the SEC came out with a risk alert in March and have also um, you know, intended to create an ESG and climate task force. So this is this is coming, you know, and as part of that announcement, I mean, the SEC in March said climate risk and sustainability are critical issues for the investing public and our capital markets, which gives you some idea as to where they are going with this. Um, and one of the key things around that is the, you know, the risk alert in particular was around funds having an ESG policy and not necessarily adhering to that. And that's where the governance piece for me is really, really important in terms of that oversight. You know, do you have the right people sitting on your ESG or sustainable and responsible investing committee? Did they have the right expertise? I mean, a number of managers are struggling in-house to 
you know, to have people on their teams with ESG experts expertise. So you need to bring someone in externally to help you with that process and maybe sit on your sit on your um, committee and help you get, get off the ground in terms of developing your policy and then overseeing that so that you stay on the right side of these regulations. And that's a really good point. I think, Rebecca, that's, that's on the ESG governance, right? That, that's not something that we often hear about people talking about that. But when you go through, you know, the, the, the ODD process or maybe the due diligence checklist, you often get asked whether if you have um, a, a ESG committee member set up and what's their kind of uh, background, whether if there's any diversity and inclusion on that one. And I guess uh, possibly just the last question that um, we're going to pick from the um the attendees today, I know there's a couple of ones coming up also, uh, but the last one I guess is to all the panelists today. Um, we touched on the ODD, we touched on the ESG, and maybe just pick your brain, uh, given that your expertise individually, um, what, what is your view um, should managers engage with investors on, on the ESG um, that you think is the best fit? I know that there's a lot of conversation about that and it could be potentially kind of drive to a, a greenwashing and what, what should the managers be um, I mean, be careful or like what would you say for, for them as a takeaway? And if I may ask, maybe um, just Igor to, to start with, followed by Rebecca and then Cosatina. Yeah, sure. I think it, it comes back to transparency and aligning the common understanding what ESG is. I think looking for the dialogue with them is this important. And I think as Constantine highlighted, the understandings what ESG stands for and what it should be is very different across investors, across managers. Um, it's important to find a common understanding, I think, in that aspect, and, and be also transparent. We are, I mean, also have to explain to honest investors, listen, for this asset class, it's pretty quite, it's difficult to achieve a ESG scoring or follow the ESG methodology or implement in our investment process, because it's not a purely equity strategy. It's a multi-asset strategy with derivative instruments. So, so there are a lot of challenges, I think, which needs to be discussed with the investor. But I think it's about also demonstrating the, the investors, okay, we have it on our radar. We are having a, active discussions internally. We, have a, we, we think about hiring people. We are um, lining up or we're developing a roadmap where we want to be in, in the next five years. So I think that's important factors. And again, it's just to emphasize having the dialogue with the investors is most important. Yeah, I agree. I think in terms of the alignment and making sure that you're giving your investors what they need and just being, you know, in terms of your ESG reporting or any statements you're putting out publicly on your websites about what you're doing, just make sure that you're actually doing that. Um, as you saw, the SEC is really, really focused on this. And I think we're going to see a, a lot more regulation in this space. So, um, you know, the golden rule of compliance, just, you know, do, do follow your policies and do what you say you're going to do. Yeah, um, yeah. My, my comment would be that ESG is definitely here to stay. It, as Rebecca said, it used to be a nice to have, but uh, not anymore. But then, uh, you know, the integration of ESG is not a race. Uh, it it should be, you know, uh, a step by step uh, process. And uh, uh, and and again, the, the self reporting part of it, especially in in, in regions that. Um, uh, regulation is not as solid as in uh, Europe. Um, uh, it can be tricky. Uh, you know, how do you attract investors? Uh, or, you know, what are the requirements of your uh, potential investors and how do you meet those? So make sure that, that there is a balance between um, uh, what you're doing internally uh, what you plan to do internally 
and uh, how this um, uh, presents, you know, outside your organization. And yeah, make sure that there is uh, consistency and that, that there is a plan. Thank you, all of the, you know, the panelists today. I think uh, there's a few uh, really good points and the key takeaways on that and the consistency, uh, alignment of interest, and um, be open and engage with active dialogue with the investors and do what you say. I think these are really good points for managers today. Be, you know, um, be cautious and also be consistent while, while you're kind of doing your pitch. And I do appreciate, you know, Rebecca, Igor, and also um, Katatina joining us today. I think you guys have amazing, you know, sharing because, you know, the, your knowledge subject uh, matters in, in covering the ODB and ESG. And, I, and also, again, to everyone who, you know, took the time this morning uh, joining with us um, um, and listening to us uh, on this particular topic. And um, it, it, for some of the questions we didn't get a chance to address today, again, we will reach out to you individually and we're happy to also share, you know, the context of each of our uh, subject matter experts today. Um, and thank you for everyone for joining and participating. And uh, I wish you guys a um, very good day. Thank you. Take care.